Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Cobb Carlson. Cobb is a documentary filmmaker, an editor, a cinematographer, and a producer. He's recently completed production on a documentary called The Greatest Radio Station in the World. The film provides a rich and entertaining history of radio station WPKN, located in Bridgeport, Connecticut. WPKN began as the University of Bridgeport's college radio station in 1963, and it has been operating as a listener-supported, community-based radio station since 1989. We are live here in the studio at 89.5 at WPKN.org on the six blocks from beautiful Long Island Sound. I didn't know anything about radio or running a radio station. And I would have guests. I had live guests. I had members of the Black Panthers. People would wander in and out of the studio, lighting the incense. They saw me coming, so they grabbed the crutch. They hit me over the head with the crutch. The president of the university tried to give away the license to the station. Programmers are all over the place. They're from all, they're all around the world, basically. They all have different backgrounds. Kings and queens, princes and princesses, lords and ladies. It's after dark. No one that stutters is going to be on radio, right? That's impossible. Once the vibration is out there, the vibration really never stops. Typical WPCAN meeting would go on for hours and hours and hours. The station at that point became 100% listener-supported. You just couldn't hear that kind of music anywhere else on the radio during the 90s. In the 90s, there was a stressed staff. Between our internal conflicts and the economic downturn, it put WP in a, in a very precarious position. A lot of people who are musicians like me and a part of the music scene really appreciate PKN. It is still one of the very few radio stations in the whole country that has no programming mandates. Most of us do this because we love the music and we just love doing radio because it's really an art form. And preserving and strengthening a community station like WBKN becomes ever more important as these other unique places on the radio dial disappear. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow, share, and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Cobb Carlson. Hello, Cobb Carlson, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. We are here to talk about the greatest radio station in the world. That is Cobb's documentary about radio station WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But before we dive into that, um, a little uh, history to revisit between Cobb and myself. Um, as, as you all are listening to this conversation, it's actually the first conversation that Cobb and I have had in, I'm going to say at least 15 years, maybe yeah. closer to 20. But for okay. a period of time, we worked on some very fun projects together at WGBH in Boston. So it's, uh, it's really good to be connected with you again. 
Likewise, Mike, really, really good to see it's been too long. So, Cobb, you are the uh, you're the producer, you're the director, you're the primary cinematographer and you are the editor uh, mm-hmm. of this documentary. Now, when I worked with you, it was primarily uh, when you were working as a, as an editor. But uh, bring us up to speed sort of on your, um, you know, your your professional CV, so to speak. Yeah. What brought you into the world of documentary filmmaking. And then I want to talk about your own personal history with this radio station. Well, I had a, I've had a real crooked career path. I was an inner city school teacher when I first graduated from college in Hartford, Connecticut. And I worked in the natural foods industry for a few years. Then this job as a nonprofit administrator fell in my lap at a YMCA down in Connecticut which is my home turf. I was born in Bridgeport and grew up in Fairfield. And then I, I made a career change in the mid eighties and uh, took some graduate, a, a special intensive filmmaking program at NYU and uh, ended up sticking around teaching at NYU for three years in the late eighties. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I gravitated towards editing And my first few jobs in New York were as an apprentice and assistant editor on feature films, first doing sound and then picture. And then my uh, career path kind of took a detour and I got a gig as an assistant editor on a documentary for ABC called Brides, A Tale of Two Weddings. And it was a long project, an hour long project with a big budget. And they let me cut a few scenes that ended up in the hour long doc. And then that same production company let me, they got another uh, series from Fox when Fox was first coming on the air and they were doing this, this reality programming and it was called uh, high school stories, I think. And, and they followed kids around in a high school outside of Chicago for a year. So I cut my teeth there and then I got a phone call out of the blue from Eric Stangy at WGBH. Oh sure. Saying I don't know I I had my brother lived in Boston and I went up there and snooped around and passed my meager resume around and Eric called me up and said I'm looking for an editor and it, we hit it off and he's going to hire me and then the uh, higher ups at Nova said no 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 we need someone who's already edited Nova. We insist on that. So Eric was very kind and said, well, my wife, Barbara's doing all this work for educational, you know, she's going to need, you know, some editors. So that was my sort of uh, inroad into uh, the world of film in Boston and particularly GBH. Yeah. So back Barbara Costa, who was actually the, uh, the uh, executive producer on a couple of the projects that you and I worked together on. Right. Yeah. And it's funny and when I was, was when I was sweetie. watching your film, um, it brought me back to those days in the editing room because, you know, the, the, uh, the productions that you and I worked on were um, these sort of history retrospectives uh, that were companion pieces to textbooks. So we were, we were charged with kind of taking these big swaths of history and cutting them down into these little five and 10 minute video chapters, but we would use music a lot. And I just had the best time talking with you 
about music. And from those days on, anytime I hear or hear of Patti Smith or Lou Reed or Taj Mahal or Los Lobos, Cobb Carlson comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah, we, I, uh, I love that time working on those projects because there was a lot of creative leeway. Yeah. And many of the battles waged were over rights issues with, with the music. Absolutely. But I can remember some cool stories. Like one with, we used uh, a song from uh, Woodstock country, Joe and the fish. Sure. And we we're able to contact and Jeanette Woods got in touch with, country joe and he was like go ahead use it yeah and yeah. same with the jefferson airplane they were it was like crazy that they just you know, they were like no problem go ahead yeah maybe it was a more innocent time i don't know but i do remember <laughs> when i used to have to clear music it, there was something about calling and saying you were from calling from pbs that yeah. you know sort of appealed to their more altruistic nature I, I i remember talking to um there's a paul simon song called boy in the bubble and there was this montage piece that I wanted to use just a line. And there's a line in the song that says, these are the days of miracles and wonders. This is a long distance call. I just wanted to use that line. Mm-hmm. And through a series of this, because you only had phone calls back then, phone calls and maybe email. Um yeah. Track down his manager uh, over some like Labor Day weekend. And they're like, yeah, fine, whatever. Stop calling me. You can use it. (laughs) (laughs) But the spirit of doc, there's something that felt similar to me between the spirit of documentary filmmaking and the spirit of community radio, independent radio. And so your film felt like a a really cool blend of the two. So do you see a a sort of the two being uh, kindred spirits at all? Yeah, I, I've always had more of a guerrilla approach to things with with editing and and low budget filmmaking, and uh, I, I think there are, there are strong ties to uh, the independent spirit of many of the folks that we worked with in Boston, mm-hmm. and to see how these people were able to get their works done over the years, and then to uh, you know, look at a radio station like WPKN and maybe uh, I didn't, I, I was just asking myself this question the other day. I wonder if it came through the film. I had a, I've had a constant sort of wonderment and awe with how they've been able to pull it off over the years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's, it is one reason I embarked on the film is that I just amazed me that, that this little tiny station in Bridgeport has been just able to maintain and still and be successful and doing continue to do great things. When did the existence of WPKN um, uh, pop onto your radar screen as a as a as a listener? Well, as a listener, when I was making that career change in the 80s and living in Fairfield County, but spending a lot of time in Manhattan. Okay. When I was in Fairfield County, I would tune in to PKN. And I have a funny story, a a filmmaking story, is that I I would, I like the station and they were looking for volunteers to answer Mm -hmm. the phones during fund drives. 
And I went in and did that a few times. And I met the general manager who's in the film, Harry Minot. And Harry had had a previous career when he was young in, in the advertising world in New York. And he made commercials. And we start talking. I'm like, yeah, I've been, I started to, when I was teaching at NYU, I had access to 16 millimeter film equipment. And I interviewed my grandmother in her backyard because the, at that time, the learning channel mm-hmm. was looking for films uh, on the elderly, short films. Well, I never made the deadline, but I had this stuff in the can, her interview. And I, ha- I knew I had to finish this film and uh, I was no longer teaching at NYU, needed a camera. And Harry had a 16 millimeter camera that he sold me. So I had this connection with, with the radio station. Oh, wow. Film music kind of connection. He sold me the camera. I ended up going over to Ireland, filming the farm my grandmother grew up on, her relatives that were still alive, the landscape, traced her journey from her farm to the boat to come over to America. Anyway, that was sort of my initial connection with PKN. Mm-hmm. A little update, when I'd go home to visit my family in Fairfield, I'd always tune in and listen. Uh, six years ago, I had to spend like 50% of my time down there in Fairfield, Connecticut, because my mom had passed. And we decided to keep my dad in the house I grew up in. So I had free time and I spent 50% of my time down there taking care of my dad. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know, meet the new manager of the station who's in the film, Steve DiCostanzo. And when he heard I was in film, he was like, you got to do a documentary on the station. I'm like, you know, I just finished this two hour documentary on this golf course architect, took two years off. Lost a lot of money. I'm not ready to do that again. Yeah. Why don't you find a student filmmaker and I'll consult for no charge? Okay. Flash forward a couple of years. I'm still down there taking care of my dad, but now I get this gig teaching at Eastern Connecticut State University in Willimanta, Connecticut. I send out a blast email to my network of friends and just to let them know, Hey, I got, this is what I'm doing now. Here's the update. And Steve, the station manager goes, goes, okay, now you can do the documentary. You know, you can use this, the equipment from the university and use student <laughs> interns. Now so that I, he knows you're gainfully employed also. <laughs> so he's uh, he, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I'll, you know, it's it's a story worth telling. That's how it came to be. Yeah. And you take a very comprehensive approach. I mean, it is a almost like a from an inception to just the day before yesterday in terms yeah. of the, the, the history of the of the station. And how did you as a as a filmmaker, how did you decide essentially, you know, how wide you wanted the aperture to be in telling this story? Well, I, I uh, asked the people who I knew were sort of the power players at the station 
who I should interview, what programmers. And so most of the programmers uh, agreed to be part of the film, but some were, you know, vehement about, no, nope, don't want to go on camera. Or they just didn't respond to me at all. And I figured out in, in the course of my interviews that radio, a lot of the people who do it uh, don't want a lens in front of them. They like sort of being just the voice mm-hmm. and they like the anonymity sure. of radio. Yep. So I respected that. And I just kind of went with the people who, you know, wanted to be part of the film. I had no idea what the story was. Not, I really didn't know where this film would go. When you, had when you knew the station primarily as a listener to it, yeah. um, what drew you to it? Was it, was it the personalities? Was it the music, the programming, uh, the, the overall spirit? I think it's all of the above, Mike. The overall spirit, for sure. Uh, back in the 80s, oh, the one thing that comes across in the film is that Harry, he drew a very strong uh, line in the sand, no underwriting, only mm-hmm. listener support, individuals like you and I writing checks. Once he left, that changed. And it, it's been a good thing. The station needed that extra financial support from local like-minded businesses. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of evolved in a really fine way. But yeah, the music, some of it, I, you know, they're very clear. Some of it you like, some of it you won't like. (laughs) So there are shows that I don't want any part of listening, quite frankly, but a lot of the programmers are just incredible. I mean, the blues programmers, the reggae programmers, uh, there's the jazz programmers. There's some really just folks with encyclopedic knowledge of the genre that they uh, present. It's kind of a cool thing. Did you have any um, opportunity to kind of draw your own conclusions about what's the psychological makeup of a DJ? in independent radio they you know i I, if you're a big radio fan um as i am i think it's easy to kind of romanticize you know romanticize these these men and women um but particularly when you're talking about sort of the golden age or what felt like the golden age of independent radio where you know you could play a whole album side and nobody was barking at you because you didn't put in the the sponsor credit or or the commercial but i'm curious if you came away from this experience getting a, a sense of, you know, what's the independent radio DJ persona all about? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a station like this. They're all very unique and quirky personalities. Uh, they come from all walks of life. Some people scraping to get by in the real world. And this is like a refuge for them. Sure. And then very, accomplished and successful business people who are doing this because they love the music. Yeah. Uh, But one of my favorite two lines in the whole film is I save it for the end, but the current station manager, Steve DeCostanza says, uh, 
the you know the programmers at uh, GB at uh, PCAN, they all think their show is the best. <laughs> exactly, and, and that's like true. They there's some egos, and uh, and Kevin Gallagher, uh, one of the longtime programmers. He says, yeah, even back in the 70s when he was starting, we were competitive and we wanted our shows to sound as good as they could sound, which is a cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. My brother um, hosts a radio show for a a station out of Manchester, New Hampshire, every Friday night, mm-hmm. Granite State of Mind. Um, it's He's got his, his one hour. He's been doing it for, I want to say, the past five or six years. It might even be longer. Yeah. Uh, but that's his hour. That's his sound. He has branded it very much like the guy who's right on, who's on right before him and on right after him. So I, I can totally relate to that. That, that sort of pride of ownership that, that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah, serious pride of ownership. And, you know, I didn't get into, I have a chapter in the film on conflict. Mm-hmm. And so I, in a very deft way, one of the programmers, you know, actually a couple of the programmers mentioned this, that, you know, the, the programmers it's a tough bunch. It's like herding kittens. They have their artists. They think they're artists and they want to do whatever they want to do, but there are certain rules that, you know, the station has to have. Yep. So with that kind of personality, there can be some conflict in the big egos. Sure. So talk to us a little bit about the, the distinction or that took place or the evolution, I guess, uh, that took place um, when WPKN went from a college radio station to a community radio station and why that happened and what the, what the import of that is. Well, that's a, you know, big part of the story. Um, As a kid growing up down in that, uh, in that area, the University of Bridgeport, even when I went away to college, it was a it was a pretty cool university and it was uh, popular, successful. And uh, a lot of students from Long Island, from New Jersey and Connecticut, primarily. It was a, a no, it was a kind of a division two powerhouse when it came to collegiate sports. And the school I went to uh South of Boston, Stonehill, we were in the same basketball conference because I Mm -hmm. played on the team. And it was a happening place. Very cool. And as mentioned in the film, then a couple faculty strikes hit and the university started to take a turn for the worse. And the city of Bridgeport became a more dangerous place and a poor industrial city in New England. So a lot of uh, parents bringing their students there to tour the campus, the neighborhoods they'd have to drive through to get to the campus were like, you know, tough. And uh, so the university progressively in the 70s into the 80s, into the 90s, started to go downhill. And apparently there was a you know, a lack of interest amongst students at the university in doing radio. So all these folks who originally were students, mm-hmm. these kind of lifers, some of these folks been there for 50 years doing their shows. 
uh, they kept the place going in the summertime and as the university was uh, hurting financially. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a gradual transition where the university finally said, you know, we don't need this. We can't afford to be paying the manager, paying the upkeep on equipment, et cetera. Uh, and so the DJs got together and said, you know, let's do it. Let's just take it over. Let's make a proposal. So that's how the transition ensued. And it became, went from a college, typical college radio station to a community supported radio station. And part of that deal, which was a sweetheart deal was they got to stay there rent free basically or dollar a year lease Mm -hmm. and use the equipment. Then it was on them to do the upgrades and, you know, uh, the most, before they moved uh, in November, the biggest upgrade they had to do in the last five years was a new transmitter, which was mm-hmm. a big fundraising thing. Yeah. But that's kind of how it evolved from a classic college radio station that kind of, because the university fell on hard times and there was a lack of student interest in doing radio, uh, it got turned over to the community members who had been there for years doing their shows. You know, the, the, your, your film not only looks great and is, and is, is really, you know, edited and cut so well as I would expect coming from you. Um, it sounds great. And I, and I was really happy to see in the credits that Tom Phillips uh, collaborated with you in that area. Tom's been on the podcast a couple of times and he's yeah. a filmmakers collaborative member. Um, uh, talk to me a bit about, uh, about how that relationship worked, particularly in a film, you know, about radio where music is at the core. Well, Tom is, he's like such a mensch. Uh, We worked on a lot of uh, documentaries over the years in Boston, PBS. And Tom did a lot of music for Charlie Stewart's documentaries. And those were documentaries that I edited. And I think I initially introduced Tom to Charlie. Well, the way you know, things worked kind of in Boston in the 90s and early 2000s was, uh, I think, the filmmaking community. Yeah, it's still there, but it's a little fractured now. Back there, it was a little bit tighter. Everyone seemed to know each other, blah, blah, blah. I need a composer. John Cusiak and Arlington, Tom Phillips were two of the big ones. And uh, Anyway, I sent, we became friends, really good friends. And I sent Tom a lot of work back when he needed a little work. Whereas like now, you know, (laughs) you know, he's like so in demand. The guy as a senior citizen is still working like crazy. Yeah, he sure is. He's so good. Yeah. Well, he's been very kind to me and that, one thing he's done is he created a music library along with one of his collaborators, Tom Martin, another composer for all their outtakes stuff. They, you know, tried and composed and then never used in films. And they had this, you know, big library. What are we going to do with all this? Well, they, they have a service online where you can go and buy cuts from Tom. 
Well, Tom knew this was a no budget film. Yep. And he just said, whatever cut you want from a library, take it. So, you know, and the funk stuff, which is phenomenal. You know, Tom did the music for Stanley Nelson for the Black Panthers. And those funk songs come from that and from Attica. There are outtakes from those two films. Wow. That's (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah. What is your... um What's your media diet consist of these days in Uh, terms of, you know, music and film in particular? Well, film, I'm like everybody else with the pandemic. It's, you know, I was always a religious um, uh, customer uh, for the Coolidge, uh, for the theaters in Arlington, all the indie theaters, right? The Kendall. I, I just... Every week I'm there, the Brattle watching movies. So, you know, uh, moved out of Cambridge, out to my girlfriends in Hopkinton, a little less, you know, because it just was a schlep to get in. Sure. But with the pandemic, like most folks, you know, streaming stuff. Yeah. I, for my money, I, I just started watching David Simon's new one, uh, We Own This City, the, yeah. kind of the continuation of The Wire. Yep. And, almost done with Bosch legacy to me after the wire and the twilight zone, I think Bosch is the best thing that I've seen on television. I have always liked kind of detective stuff anyway, mm-hmm. but so I tend to lean towards that. And some of the British thrillers on acorn, I like, uh, and still watching documentaries and revisiting films. It's fascinating being 68 years old and teaching uh, 19 and 20 and 21 year olds. Yeah. Folks who don't know who Francis Ford Coppola is or have never seen a Hitchcock film. So I find I'm revisiting a lot of the great movies and golden age of, you know, with Scorsese and Jonathan Demme and uh, Terrence Malick and trying to turn my students onto these masters. So that's been fun. Yep. Revisiting some of that stuff and my, the usual dose of documentaries, you know, as many as possible. And what about from a, from a music perspective? Because I, 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 as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I always, I enjoy speaking with you about music, but I remember you, you always had very strong opinions about music. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time I wanted to try to, I'm sure we couldn't have gotten the rights to it, but I wanted to try to use a little piece. I think it was something from Dave Matthews. And you were like, what is this? What is this? Get this out of here. (laughs) Well, that's before, you know, I I did my volunteer work for Farm Aid and then became a big fan of Dave. Oh, okay. He's such a good guy and he did, it's done such great work for Farm Aid. And that was my big volunteer thing. Oh, that's cool. In the 90s and 2000s, because Farm Aid, their office is based in Cambridge. Yeah. And my good friend, Carolyn Mugar, runs Farm Aid. And I was very, very tight with her husband, John O'Connor, who died tragically in a pickup basketball game over 20 years ago at the Cambridge YMCA. We were, you know, we went to high school together. We were good pals. Hmm. That was my kind of road in there. And I apologize for that. Cause yeah, I have very strong uh, opinions about music, but it's funny. I used to do this radio show on Austin Brighton free radio. And I was oh, I editing at GBH and I would like take my lunch break mid afternoon 
like to go do the hour long show and then scoot back to continue working at GBH. And I did that while Austin Brighton Free Radio was happening, which it only lasted for like three years. Yeah. And my my taste in music vary. And I'm going to have to send you some CDs because this crazy thing, Mike, is that even though I only did that radio show for three years, you know, that back then people weren't really doing many. There were some people doing comp tapes for friends. Sure. Oh, yeah. Pass along this, you know, I assembled this, you know, these list of 20 songs. So I did my best of for three years through the radio station. Everyone yep. liked it. Yep. I continue, I've continued to do it up until last year. And last year was the first time I said, no more hard CDs. Here's the list. You go and <laughs> you go you know, buy the stuff on yeah. Spotify or Apple and you create, you know, you create your own CD or your own. And now, were these, be- were these best of particular years? Every year I've done one. Okay. For the last since two thousand and one, right up until this past year, and, and did it's they, it, did the did the best of like say you were doing the best of you, you know two thousand five or something. Yeah. Um, did all that music have to be have been released in two thousand five, yeah. or did it have to have come into your world came, at two thousand five? Well, ninety nine point five percent had to come out that year. Oh, that's awesome! Well, a couple that slipped through the cracks, and I'm like, how did I miss that last year? Yeah. Or how did I miss that one five years ago? There were only a few of those. And my sources for finding that not so much like PKN, but more like uh, the magazine, No Depression, a lot of America, uh, Alt-Americana. Yep. I work with Farm Aid uh, in Boston locally, maybe a little bit. At UMB, although they were always a little bit too folky for me, mm-hmm. it was mostly my own research. And then, uh, yeah, just particular folks I gravitated to, like uh, Mary Gaucher, John Doe, Michael Franti. Mary Gaucher uh, just released some new music a couple of weeks yeah. ago, actually. Oh, which I was I was so happy to hear about because I had read. Uh, sometime in the last four or five years that she was just hanging it up. She just was feeling like the grind was, was, was getting to her. Um, but I I was happy to see that she has some new music out. You made reference to, uh, the pandemic and, and before we started recording, uh, you were mentioning how, you know, the pandemic, not surprisingly, um, presented some particular challenges when you were making the film. So touch upon that for a minute. Well, I, my first shoot was February of 2020 and I went down by myself and just as a test, cause I had, I bought a camera cause I didn't like the cameras that the university Eastern Connecticut had. And I, uh, my friend, Peter Flynn, a documentary filmmaker, he's, he used to run the Boston Irish film festival. He's a professor at Emerson. And I saw, uh, the last two films he had done, I'm like, oh, my God, this stuff looks like 35 millimeter film. It's fan gorgeous. And he said, yeah, this Canon, you know, e, uh, I, I even forget the I haven't touched it in about five months, but it's the E100 or the 100C. Mm-hmm. And it's got this tight little kind of 
fat body and I, I bought a zoom lens from my uh, cameraman buddy up in Montreal, Peter Krieger. And uh, he had shot a lot of stuff for Charlie Stewart, but he, he married a filmmaker in Montreal and she teaches at the university of Montreal. So he moved up there a number of years ago, but anyway, went down to test the new camera, shot some B roll. That's all I did. And then in March of 2020, I went down and brought some students with some university cameras to shoot this thing called music mash, which is a big kind of festival fair. The station has is a big fundraiser to sell vinyl. And so the students did most of that shooting the music mash. And I focused on interviewing programmers, my first round. And I shot those at, at the old station. Two weeks later, COVID hits and the station closes down. No visitors allowed. Very few programmers would go in there. They're all doing their shows remotely. So that, I, I just, it got put on ice, the film. Come July of 2020, figured out a way. All right, I can do this if I socially distance the interviews. I did them all myself. Uh, we did them at the Bijou Theater in downtown Bridgeport. The manager there would let me in. I would double mask. I'd set my camera up more than social distancing called for. I'd use the long lens. Yep. Uh, I sanitized everything. Uh, some people didn't even want me to put the lavalier on. So we would just use the shotgun. Uh, so it was tricky. And yeah. I did all that myself and, uh, and shot a little bit of B-roll, but not many programmers were coming in to do their shows. As that loosened up and the vaccine became available, more and more programmers began to come back into the studio. Mm -hmm. And I was able to recruit some graduate filmmaking students from Sacred Heart University in Bridgeport through a connection with a faculty member there. I had three different student filmmakers who were kind enough to go in and, and shoot B-roll of programmers doing their shows that I wasn't able to get. And uh, that's kind of how it went. And did you, were you, were you editing over. as you went along or did yeah. you, uh, you know, give yourself kind of a designated post-production period where you just looked at everything and then decided to put it together as, as, as you saw fit. No, I edited as I went along and in those lulls, that's where I was able to do the deep dive into uh, the free archival footage that's available out there uh, through the library of Congress and internet archive. Yeah. And, and I really lucked out with the fact that uh, the station was on the campus of the University of Bridgeport. And they had been there since the mid-60s. Uh, but the university had completely, not only with COVID, but financially, they just shut their doors in, in shortly after I started the film. What's happened since is that two small universities in Connecticut 
have bought the University of Bridgeport and split it up. Okay. But part of that purchase uh, meant that the station had to leave. But fortunately, they didn't leave until I was all done with my film. Yeah. But the library on campus, I wanted to tap into their archives uh, for my historical stuff to give the film some context. And lucky for me, most of the library staff had been fired, but one archivist was still there. And the guy was just a great guy. And all the stuff from the student newspapers in the 60s and 70s uh, and 80s had been uh, scanned. Uh, So they were there and the yearbooks over those years had been scanned. But it was poor quality. Yeah. So I would be able to remotely go look at that stuff. And then I would tell the archivist, Anthony, can you rescan these 10 images? And he would do that for me. Like, I mean, it was like incredible, really. Yeah, man. If you're if, when you're doing a documentary, particularly, you know, and you want some primary source material, you want to make best friends with an archivist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, lucky that I, I that, this, that the library was still even open and yep. that the staff were there would be so gracious. Yeah. Well, it's such a fun movie to watch. You know, it really conveys that that spirit of there's a little taste of anarchy in there and, you know, independence. And, you know, I wish you really the best with it. Uh, You were telling me about a big premiere that's going to be taking place uh, in Bridgeport at the Bijou on June 25th. What can what can listeners know about that? And um, what else can you share with us about how you plan on introducing the world to this film? Well, I don't have a website, an exclusive website for the film yet. The the station has has set up a page on their website. So it's, it's easy. It's uh, WPKN.org. Mm-hmm. And if you navigate through the website, they've got a documentary page. So all the info is there. And they're really promoting this on their website, this premiere uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and they're promoting it heavy on social media. It is a big fundraiser, a gala event. So if you pay the 150 per ticket, you get uh, food and Prosecco and a tour of the station. And, uh, you know, I'll be there hanging out. So that's going to be a fun thing. Yeah. And then the following month, also in Bridgeport, uh, the film will headline the Bridgeport Film Festival. And down the road, I've got to uh, get busy. Um, Unfortunately, when I did my golf documentary seven, eight years ago, I could pick up the phone and call the acquisitions people at Netflix. It was that easy. And they didn't take the film, but they considered it. Yep. Now it's like a brick wall. You have to have an agent. Uh, entertainment lawyer, a distributor. It's so I've got to navigate those changed waters and seas. But yeah, I I got to dream big a little bit. I would like to get eyeballs on it, and the easiest to do that is one of the major platforms, right? Whether it's Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. Yep. 
So I'll, I'll try my hardest that route. If not, I'll probably end up just streaming it uh, myself from, from my own website. And the, the bummer there is then you got to constantly be publicizing. Sure. So, right. Well, I, I, I do certainly hope it finds the audience that it deserves. As I said, it's, it's a great story. You know, if you're, if you're a fan of independent radio and just that, as I said, that anarchistic spirit that, that makes people so passionate about the music that they love and sort of the um, almost the thematics that, that can only be carried through radio. Um, it, it, it really captures that so well. Cobb Carlson, the producer, the director, the editor, and the cinematographer of the greatest radio station in the world. Thanks so much for chatting, Cobb. It's been great to catch up. Likewise, Michael. And like you said, it really, the baseline for all of this, and I think even prompting you to do this is uh, the thing we all share is love of music. Love Absolutely. Of music. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Stay well, my friend. All right. Well, let's have a beer sometime. I'll let you know. Hopefully the film will be screened at the region in Arlington. I'm working on it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, well, well Filmmakers I'll, Collaborative, you know. uh, the last couple of years, uh, has had the Boston International Kids Film Festival run at the region. They're great people there. Yeah. Uh, so reach out to Laura or I'll connect you guys if you if you want any uh, info on an in there. Yeah. Leland, the guy who runs it's an old friend of mine. Awesome. So I I I uh, haven't I sent him the film a couple weeks ago. I haven't heard whether he liked it. Hopefully he does. But he seemed to be pretty positive about uh, showing it one night. Terrific. Thanks and again, Cobb. Take good care. Have a good summer. You too. 